And church, it is great to be with you this morning. Hasn't it been an awesome service already? I mean, thank you to the worship team. It is such, such a joy to worship under their leading. Uh, and our worship doesn't stop, right? Worship is both singing, it's studying the word, it's a conversing with one another. And so with that said, let's jump into our scripture for today. We're going to be in Luke chapter 16, specifically verses 19 through 30. But before we go to those exact verses, and as you flip there with me, I want to give us a little bit of the context for the chapter as a whole, because a lot of the different passages within chapter 16 interrelate. At the beginning of the chapter, Jesus begins speaking to his disciples, the 12 who have journeyed with him in the closest way out of all people on earth. He begins teaching them and specifically gives them a parable about a shrewd manager. And the point of that parable that he gives to them is he's calling them to do all that they can within their power to secure eternal salvation, to put all of their focus, all of their effort, all of their interest in securing eternal salvation. And in the meantime, using the resources that God has given them for God's purposes. And so Jesus starts with this parable, and he teaches them something incredibly important right at the end of it, where he says, look, you cannot serve both God and money. You see that at the end of verse 13. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus says, you are going to have one ultimate master over your life. Not, not sorry, one ultimate master over your life, not multiple but then the story continues, and in verse 14, a new group of people enters the scene. And we see that it says, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things that Jesus said and ridiculed him. So he was talking to the disciples, and then the Pharisees heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. Most of you know the Pharisees were considered the spiritual leaders of Israel at the time. Think of them as the ancient day pastors or spiritual shepherds of Israel. And they react to Jesus' words with rebuke. I wonder what they might have said. We don't have exactly what the rebukes were, but one of them, I think, might have been, well, Jesus, you say that we cannot serve both God and money. Well, look at us. We're the spiritual leaders of God's people, but we have incredible homes incredible food at our disposal, the beautiful garments we wear that enhance our worship, we're pretty sure it's possible to serve God and still serve money in some capacity. But Jesus, he confronts this mentality. He confronts their hearts and the hypocrisy within them. And the following verses are Jesus's rebuke to the Pharisees. And so now we're entering into the middle of Jesus's rebuke, where he shows them what comes as a result of seeking to serve both God and money. So with that said, let's jump in to verse 19. This is a parable that Jesus gives, and he says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. 
Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who had passed from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Then he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is our passage for today, a compelling story, and a story about two men we see, a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus, whose name means whom God has helped. The rich man, Jesus uses as a portrait to uh, illustrate the Pharisees, to connect with the Pharisees. That's what the rich man is an example of. The poor man, Lazarus, he uses as an example of the opposite of the Pharisees. And we see that he describes the rich man in two ways, right? It says that he is clothed in purple and fine linen, and he feasts sumptuously every day. Essentially, this man had everything he could want at his disposal. There wasn't a thing within his preference, within his purview, that wasn't at his reach. He could have whatever he wanted in that time. Whereas the poor man, Lazarus, he's described in several ways as well. He's described as being laid at the rich man's gate. And so he doesn't have shelter. He's homeless. He is described as desiring to feed from what falls from the rich man's table. He's hungry. It says that he's covered with sores. He has serious medical needs. And then it says that he is surrounded by dogs. His company is not your uh, typical desire. And don't think of like all the golden retrievers that you see on videos online. Those aren't the kind of dogs that we're talking about. We're talking about Strays who've been in the wild, who carry diseases. That's the poor man's situation. And I'm here to tell us today that for many of us, in this story, if you're going to associate with somebody, we're the rich man. Which might not have been your first connection in this story. It might still not be uh, something you're convinced of. But for many of us in this room, we are like the rich man. Just think about the two ways that Jesus describes him, right? He says, essentially, there's lots of options for clothing, 
and lots of options for food. Well, I imagine you all have many outfits you could have chosen this morning to come to church. And some of you might spend a little too much time in the mirror before you come to church. Or maybe some of us need to spend more time in front of the mirror before we come to church. But we have lots of options, right? And then secondly, I imagine all of us have many, many options for food. You might be considering where you're trying to go to lunch after service, or what you're going to have this week, or talk about just the number of grocery stores that we can purchase from. Compare it to Lazarus, who had probably one pair of clothing, no option for food. I think there's an association there. We are much more like the rich man in this story. But remember, uh, riches is not uh, inherently wrong. The question is, what do we use with them? That's what we've been studying the last several weeks, right? What do we do with the resources that God has given us? Now, with that said, this connection that we are the rich man, that might not be true for every single person within this room. If your story, if your daily life experience is much more connected to the experience of Lazarus, we want to tell you that we welcome you. We are thankful you're here. We love you. And we hope that you experience the hospitality and love of God's people in our community. And so with that in mind, how was the rich man supposed to treat Lazarus? Well, Jesus' hearers at this time might remember a teaching he gave just a couple chapters earlier. In Luke chapter 14, verses 13, he was situated within the ruler of a Pharisee's house at a feast. And Jesus gives them a compelling teaching in this moment about how they're to treat people like Lazarus. In chapter 14, verse 13, he says, But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Wow. Lazarus was to be a welcomed guest into the rich man's home. Could you imagine that kind of a picture? Lazarus being welcomed in, called in. That's how the rich man was supposed to treat him. But that's not what we see in this passage, right? In verse 21, it, or verse 20, it says that he's laid at his gate outside of the house. He desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table, which implies that he never received anything. And then, finally, we also can imply through this passage that Lazarus was ignored. If you're laid at somebody's gate, you can't claim that you're unaware of this person on your property. Every time the rich man would walk in and out of his property, he would have to purposely ignore his presence. We do not know much about this rich man, but from what we do know is that in the one area he could have helped Lazarus, he chose not to. And so the question comes to us today, do we embrace a self-centered life or an others-centered life fueled by whole life generosity? Do we embrace a self-centered life or an others-centered life fueled by whole life generosity. Because think about this. What does Lazarus need? He needs four things. He needs food. He needs shelter. He needs medical attention. And he needs company. 
friends. The rich man could have provided all of that for him. And in fact, as we saw in Luke 14, verse 13, was commanded to. You and I may not know somebody like Lazarus, a beggar, somebody who's struggling with homelessness. But I'm sure all of us know of somebody who's faced or is facing financial, a financial turnaround, serious medical needs, uh, needs uh, community, has lost loved ones or dear friends. So if we have those people within our purview, the question is, how are we going to them? Are we going to them? Or would we rather ignore the issues at play and keep our own comfortable lifestyle? Because the thing is, when you welcome somebody into your home, like Jesus commanded in Luke 14, what happens? Well, you get conversing. You begin to connect. You probably offer them, hopefully, some water or something to eat. And then over time, as somebody continues to be welcomed into your home, you're going to open up. You're going to share your time, your love, your resources, your connections, your advice. And so do we, do we do exactly that? Or do we kind of hold to our own? In fact, the image that comes to my mind when I think of an other-centered life is Acts 4, 32 through 35. This is a powerful passage near the beginning of the church after Jesus has risen from the dead and ascended back into heaven. And I think, man, if this image was, was uh, possible, man, how much would things change within our city? Read it with me. Acts 4, 32, or just listen on. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But when, but, sorry, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Brothers and sisters, do we want to see this in reality? Do we want to see this in real time? That everyone, it says the full number, were of one heart and soul. Nobody considered anything that belonged to them to be their own. That it was to be given of freely for the benefit of the community, for the benefit of the body of Christ. What if we lived like this? The world would not be able to ignore it. Could you imagine? How would they be able to ignore it? The people radically giving to one another, sacrificing in ways the world never would have thought possible. I pray that this is something that we will pursue. Because I think we are. I think we're beginning to see that happen in our community. We're seeing people take steps of faith, steps of risk, steps of sacrifice. And it is beautiful. And so for those of you who are pursuing it, run. Keep going. And for those of us who might be struggling with it, let's join the party. It is worth pursuing. Unfortunately, though, this image is not what we see in this parable. Continuing on, we see in the next portion 
what happens as a result of serving money, which is temporary pleasure, regret, and pain. Starting in verse 22, it says, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. What do we learn from these first couple of verses? Well, we see that it does not matter whether you have many resources or a small amount of resources. The same fate is faced by both the rich man and Lazarus. Spoiler alert, we're all going to die. Sorry to break it to some of you, and maybe, honestly, to some of you young kids. But don't worry, you don't have to fear it. Because even as we all face the same fate, there is hope in that fate. But what happens here is there's a reversal, a reversal that takes place that would have shocked Jesus' listeners. The poor man, it says, was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Abraham's side is another way to say heaven. Abraham is in the presence of God, seeing him in all his glory and goodness and love, and Lazarus is at his side in heaven. But then it says, the rich man who also died was buried, and he went to Hades. The poor man went to heaven, and the rich man went to hell. This would have been shocking for Jesus' hearers at the time, because they thought of somebody who's esteemed by the community, somebody who has many resources, somebody who has been blessed by God financially, well, then they must be blessed by God spiritually. And Jesus says that that's not necessarily the case. But the reverse also isn't the case, right? Just because somebody is rich does not mean that they're going to spend eternity separated from God. And just because somebody's poor doesn't mean they're going to spend eternity with God. Pastor Bill Mitchell reminded of us reminded us of that fact last week. So in case you weren't here last week, you can now be reminded too. So then if that's not the case, that it's not dependent on how many resources we have, then why did this happen? Well, it happened because through the details that Jesus gives us in this parable and the totality of scripture, it is clear that the rich man loved himself and money, not God as evidenced by his lack of love for those in need. Friends, this is an example of a man who thought it is possible to serve both God and money, just like the Pharisees did. This man is an example of that thinking. And so the result of this decision was awful. And in fact, not just awful, but could not be undone. Look at verses 24 and 26. The rich man calls out to Father Abraham, saying, Have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. The rich man was asking for relief. He was pleading for relief. And Abraham says that that is not possible, that this decision that he made during his life affected he, his eternal resting place forever. No amount of money, worldly honor, or negotiating could undo the decision that this man made to be God in his own life rather than to submit to the good God who made him. 
And so Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, the ones listening to him, the ones who rebuked him, Jesus is saying, the road you are walking on is leading to this. That's the end result. And so my friends, I think we would be remiss to not ask the question, are we walking on this road? Are some of you trying to serve both God and money? You're saying, well, I've, I've got a foot in on Sundays, but I've also got a foot in with all my resources and figuring out how that can dictate a better life for me rather than trusting God for it. Are we seeking to serve both God and money? And I encourage you not to just flippantly push that question away, saying, well, of course I'm not. When we come to gather on Sundays, we're called to evaluate our hearts before the Lord, asking him, what am I not seeing clearly? Help me see, Holy Spirit. And so ask yourself. But even if that might be the case now, that doesn't have to be the case. 10 minutes from now, tomorrow or next week, it is possible to avoid serving both God and money. So how do we do that? We see the answer to that question in the next section. Continuing on to verse 27. The rich man, after Abraham has said to him, uh, he cannot re experience relief, that's not possible for him. Well, then he asks Abraham a different question. He says, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. So the rich man's now shifted his focus from himself to his family. And that's this next section. This next section is about a warning. So how do we avoid serving both God and money? We listen to and respond to the warning. Verse 28 says, so that he may warn them. Well, warn them of what? What would Lazarus go and warn this rich man's brothers of? Well, he would warn them that their earthly decisions have eternal consequences. He would warn them that it's not possible to serve both God and money. And with that said, it's not possible to serve God and anything. God and our body, God and our family, God and reputation, God and career, you fill in the blank. Jesus is teaching that you will have one master over your life. Who will it be? And if God is not our master, then we experience the consequences that result of rejecting the good life giver. Instead of embracing life, we choose to embrace death. My brothers and sisters, this is not a message that many people necessarily want to hear every day. But who else is going to tell them the message? Who else is going to warn those who don't know that not living in submission to a good God comes with eternal consequences? Is it going to be us? Because if it's not us, then who will it be? I cringe to think of men and women who may rise up in the judgment one day, whom I personally knew and they might ask, Bill, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me about what would result as 
because of my decision to not follow Jesus? Why didn't you tell me that there was something on the other side? Why didn't you tell me and take the time? And so my brothers and sisters, are, are people going to say that of you? And it's not to, to guilt us. It's, it's to produce urgency in us. Because there are people everywhere within our lives that are just like the brothers to the rich man. People whom we know personally but are not following Jesus. And Jesus has some strong words about what happens when that occurs. So how do we avoid serving both God and money? How do we avoid this lie that is out there? We listen and respond to the warning. And how are we to respond to the warning that we're given? We are to respond through biblical Repentance. Biblical repentance. What is biblical repentance? You may be unfamiliar with the term. It means to turn. It means to turn from something to something else. Repent means to turn from my ways of living to God's ways of living. And biblical repentance starts with God. It starts with seeing God who is glorious, who is mighty, who has given us life. And it then takes a step into realizing I'm not like that God, that God who is all loving, that God who is perfect, that God who is patient. I'm sinful, rebellious, self-centered. And there's a desire to change, a desire to change and become like God. But we understand that that doesn't happen on our own power then we'd have a works-based righteousness. It happens upon God's power. And so how does that work? Well, we're called to confess our sins, to confess that we are not like God, and to confess that we need somebody to take the punishment of our sins for us. And that's what Jesus does. And when Jesus does that, well, then we're called to surrender to him, to plead for forgiveness, to confess a new way of life, declaring that he is Lord and I no longer am. Biblical repentance starts and ends with God. And this is our charge to the world. We are called to warn them. Because if we do not, who will? But we know that this isn't our only charge to the world, right? Jesus warned, but he also charges us to love. He calls us to go and to give of ourselves again and again to a world that is in need through a lifestyle of whole life generosity. And so we warn and we love and we allow people to make a response to that supernatural love that Christ fills us with. This is our charge to the world. And for those of us who are hesitating, my question is, well, what will it take for us to be willing to share the gospel? What will it take? I think at the end of the day, what it will take is thinking and meditating upon the reality of hell. Just think about this. Consider the person next to you. All right, whoever's next to you, consider that person. Consider that person you know is going to die tomorrow. I know, sorry, sobering reality. But think about it. If you knew that you could prevent that, what length would you go to? 
You would do everything within your power to stop that, to warn them, to protect them, to help them. And yet, brothers and sisters, we have dozens of men and women in our lives who are on a road that leads to destruction. Are we warning them? Are we seeking to protect them? Are we seeking to call them to what is life? Because oftentimes we just don't meditate on the fact of what happens if we don't do that. Jesus, in this surreal moment, he is actually giving the very warning that the rich man wants his brothers to receive. In this surreal moment, Jesus is giving this warning to the Pharisees, saying, because of your love of money rather than your love of God, you are on a path that leads to destruction, not just for yourself, but for your families. You are leading them astray. And so how do the Pharisees respond? Well, we don't have that just yet. That's coming in a couple minutes. We see the rich man wants his brothers to be warned, right? How does Abraham respond to that plea? Abraham says in verse 29 something a little surprising. He says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He essentially says to the rich man, they have enough. Moses and the prophets, that refers to the Old Testament. If you're not making that connection, it refers to the Old Testament. He says, in the Old Testament, they have enough. They have plenty of warning. They have plenty of news. They have plenty of evidence of God's goodness, his faithfulness, why it's worthwhile to follow him. But then, how does the rich man say, respond? He says, no, Father Abraham. He objects, saying, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And don't we oftentimes think like this, right? Like, I... I don't know if you've been in this situation, but where I've been talking to somebody about Jesus, I'm like, man, if I could just explain this perfectly, like they'd have to come to know Jesus. If I could just explain it perfectly, or if God would give an indisputable miracle where it's undeniable that he exists, or where they would see the supernatural love of God in me so clearly that they would be moved to repent, then it it would happen. We think like this, right? If only, if only, if only. But Here, Abraham is saying, they have enough. Moses and the prophets is enough. Because he says in verse 31, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. That's a huge word. Because what it says is, an indisputable miracle is not enough. See, miracles are great. And it's incredible that God still produces them to this day. But a miracle doesn't produce repentance necessarily. If you're struggling to believe that, let's look at God's word. Go to a case study and think about the people of Israel. The people of Israel, when they were in Egypt, enslaved, and then God rescued them, what did he do? He gave 10 plagues to the nation of Egypt. He set the people of Israel free. They walked through the Red Sea. He parted it for them. And then they even heard God's voice from Mount Sinai. The audible voice of God. Could you imagine that for a second? Like, 
The voice that's described as mighty waters, thunder, lightning. Imagine hearing him speak audibly to you. That's what Israel experienced. And then, if you continue reading in the Bible, the book of Numbers tells us how that same group of people rebelled against God ten times. Ten times. That God that rescued them from slavery. Who are we to think that we would be any better? That, all right, well, you know, I saw God's miracles, you know, in the flesh, with my own eyes, and there's no chance I would rebel against God. And there's no chance that anybody else would rebel against God. We see that miracles are not guarantors of repentance. And that's why Abraham says God's word is sufficient. God's word is sufficient. Because when we begin to think that God's word is not sufficient and we need a miracle, we begin to think that humanity has a head problem. But that's not true. We have a heart problem. It's not a head problem. It's a, head, it's a heart problem. Many people will even admit that they believe that there's evidence for God, but they are unwilling to submit to the good God who wants to shepherd them. God's word is actually the truest miracle. God's word, and if it's true, it provides more miracles than we could possibly want, right? Just think of your favorite Bible stories. If those are true, you already have the evidence. You already have the miracle. You don't need another one. You have a God who's faithful, brothers and sisters, who never fails, who loves you enough to create a book unlike anything else so that you might know him and enjoy him forever. This is Jesus' final rebuke to the Pharisees because he demonstrates to them repentance is not something that only happens in the mind. It has to occur in the heart. Jesus essentially says to the Pharisees, if the scriptures are not enough to cause you to repent, then there is not a sign that God can give that will change your hearts. So, brothers and sisters, are the scriptures enough for you? Are the scriptures enough for me? Are they enough for us to obey? Are they enough for us to trust, to have faith? Or are we looking for something more than God's holy word? God says that this word, heaven and earth will pass away, but this word will never pass away. Why would we look somewhere else? God has given us all that we need. Now, verse 31, though, is much more than a hypothetical. Right? Jesus says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. It's much more than a hypothetical. Jesus is prophesying about the Pharisees and many others. Because as we know, Jesus went to the cross on Good Friday. He bore the punishment for our sins that we deserve. He died and was buried. But three days later, as we've sung so much about this morning, he rose again, victorious. And the Pharisees had much evidence to compel them that this was true. They had their own guards whom they hired come to them 
talking about the angel coming down, rolling the stone away, and the empty tomb. And yet the Pharisees rejected, rejected God's greatest sign, choosing to serve their own desires rather than the God who loved them enough to die for them. And so the question comes to us, who do you serve? Who do you serve, my brothers and sisters? Do you serve the God who gave his life for you? Or do you serve money? Do you serve popularity? Do you serve your family? Do you serve comfort? Who do you serve? Because the call for us is the same as every person in this story. It's the call to repentance. Repentance doesn't end when we become a believer. Repentance is our bread and butter. Repentance is the thing that we continually practice because we know that we're not perfect. We know that we have sinned that we want to turn from so that we might enjoy God more. And so for you, what is that? Perhaps it's one of the three on the screen. Perhaps you need to repent today of of serving money or anything else instead of God. Serving comfort instead of sharing the gospel with those in need. Serving the intellect instead of trusting God. If that's you, you don't have to fear. I have to repent. I need to come before God and ask him to change my heart every day. And this is what we're called to do on Sunday mornings, that we realign with our God so we might shine brightly for the world to see throughout the week. So think about it. Where do you need to repent today? One of the best ways to repent is actually to do that with a believer in Jesus. And so our prayer team is going to be up here at the end of service after our closing song. And they would love nothing more than to pray with you, to encourage you, to remind you that God forgives those who come to him, to send you out with gladness and support and love. Or perhaps you pray with the person who brought you. Perhaps you pray with somebody you know that's a mentor of yours or a discipler of yours. But this is why we're here, to come to our God in view of our sin and in view of his love and ask him to change us. Don't neglect the opportunity. After we're done singing, come forward or remain in your seat. These are the most important things that we could do this day. Let's pray together. God, I ask that you would help us to see that when we repent and surrender to the God who made us, we will find greater joy than the things that we previously served could ever provide. Father, we we thank you that you are the God who saves, that you're the one who has made a way. And I pray that for those who perhaps do not know you, that they would see you that they would feel compelled to follow, that they would know that you are worthy. And you're the God who will love them unlike anybody else ever could. Father, we thank you that um, (laughs) 
You're the God who's going to do this work in us. You're the God who's going to cause us to give unlike we've ever seen before. You're going to cause us to be the ones who will share the gospel unlike we've ever seen before. And you're the ones who will cause us to have faith and trust in your word unlike we've ever seen before. We put this in your capable hands. And it's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen.